Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Liz Crow. And in this podcast, we're going to tackle a tricky topic. Liz, as many of you know, is an advanced social worker in a paediatric intensive care unit in Brisbane. Now that role for her means doing a lot of bereavement counselling around child death. In this podcast, we're going to talk about how we talk to children when bad things happen. For some of you, this may be hard to listen to and it may bring up memories, either distant or recent, that are hard. A little warning before we start, just be aware of yourself and if this is going to be too much for you, then switch off and go and listen to a different podcast and come back to it another time when you feel ready. So Liz, you're confronted every day at work with tragic circumstances where children are confronted by the reality of the world and we have to try and guide them through that, whether that's as doctors or nurses or in your department as a social worker. What are the things that we can do to help guide children, whether they're our patients, patients' relatives, or perhaps even our own children through times that get hard. Our natural inclination as adults is to shelter children from things that we think are going to cause them sadness or disappointment or fear or change. However, we can't shelter children from these painful things. This is a a reality and a painful fact of life. In developing countries, children remain exposed to death and poverty and hardship every day. However, in the Western world, it's only been in the last 100, 150 years that children stop being witness to childbirth, to death and to hardship in their own homes. We have to realise that kids are a lot more hardy and a lot more aware than what we give them credit for. Most people who have had anything to do with children would know that if you wanted to hide something from a child, all it does is make them hone in more. So if you kick your toe and you swear, you'll find that your child who is 100 metres away will actually hear the swear word because they know that something's happened. However, you can stand behind them and ask them to come to dinner 40 times and they won't budge. Children are extremely perceptive and they're very attuned to the adults around them. Now, what we find in our work is that whenever there is any sort of tragedy, some sort of diagnosis, an illness, and a car accident, a drowning, often people's first inclination is to say, we're not going to tell the children, we're not going to involve them. Families will look to us as health professionals for guidance on this, and that's why we've got to be prepared and have the language to assure them and to assure that those children are actually involved in the process, because we know from research, from experience, that the children who do the best are the children who've had the opportunity and the choice to remain involved, no matter what that looks like. A lot of what we talk about, Liz and I, on the podcast does involve confronting difficult things. And actually, there's an ongoing theme that actually taking the brave step and confronting difficulties will in the long run help. We've talked about it to do with communication with colleagues. We've talked about it in many other spheres. What you're saying, Liz, is that we need to be the same with children. I know with my kids, I've got three boys. If I even sense that one of them is upset, I would dive in front of that hurt and I would do anything, literally anything to protect them. The phrase of I'd step in front of a bus for them never becomes more real than when you've had children. I want to protect them from the world. How do we balance that desire within ourselves to do what you're saying, to be honest, without feeling we're letting both our child down and also whether as a professional or as a parent, letting ourselves down? What we have found in recent times is that the rates of depression and mental health are climbing. And I think it's because children are actually too protected. They don't realise that disappointment, failure, 
anger, not being happy, not being amused, not being entertained all the time isn't a constant state of life and it's just not. Despite you having that wonderful desire that comes from a really good place, it's actually not doing your children any favors. You are not helping them to become resilient or realistic about life in any way, shape or form. Children need to know that their parents don't get on all the time. Children need to know that they won't excel in everything in life because otherwise we create this complete bubble around them. Then they leave school or leave home and they're just exposed to this nasty world with no resources, no understanding of how to negotiate around it. In our unit, we are constantly having to say, this child's sibling has died or is going to die. You can't protect a child from that. They're going to go home and have to live with their family's grief and live with that absence every single day. So the important thing is, is that they've understand the process. They understand that they weren't responsible for it because children under the age of 10 will continuously assume responsibility for things that happen because they're very egocentric and they believe the world centers around them. I've had children who weren't even home when their brother or sister drowned in the pool who will cry to me and say, it was my fault I left the gate open because they weave themselves into the story. It's really important that they understand the process of exactly what's happened. And they'll be really curious by nature. Children aren't afraid of death the way adults are because most children can't possibly conceptualize what that means. Grief and loss is very developmental. So let's take this to a practical example, a hypothetical situation. You're in either the emergency department or the paediatric intensive care unit and a child has come in and they've been severely injured. They're intubated, ventilated. They need to go to theatre for a potentially life-saving operation. And you go into the room and the parents of the child have asked you to speak to their siblings. How do you start even beginning to address that? Is there a framework you can use to try and make sure you get those important messages across while still maintaining hope? So first of all, I would never speak to someone else's children. I am a stranger and we teach stranger danger to children all the time and in the most vulnerable, new and exposed time of their life. I don't want to set myself up as the guru. I don't know their children. So what I do is empower the adults who are known to this child to talk to them. Long after we're gone, those parents or those grandparents or that teacher is still going to be in that child's life. And they have to feel like they do have the resources and skills to help that child because they actually do. So I would have a very open and frank conversation with the adults first, where I would say it's really important that we give these children the opportunity. I never tell them that they must because they're their kids. At the end of the day, those adults have to make that decision for themselves. However, I reassure them that those conversations and involving children is exceptionally important. At this time, people often really struggle about whether or not to involve siblings. Often siblings have been exposed to the actual initial accident anyway. They've been walking home from school and someone's been hit by a car and all the other kids have seen it. I have never in my 20 years career taken a child into a room and had them be totally shocked by what they've seen. Usually a child's imagination is 10,000 fold from anything I can show them in a bed. Before we take any child into any sort of situation, you walk through the senses. What's the child going to hear? What's the child going to see? What's the child going to be able to touch? What's the child going to be able to understand? And so we prime adults up to talk to children about that. And I just remain in the room in case they get stuck to kind of give some hints. 
So in terms of a framework, it's really about being very honest. For any adult who's ever had to have a serious conversation with a child about divorce or about illness, we build it up in our minds and it actually often for children isn't that same level of stress or distress depending on their developmental level. It's really about sticking with the facts, not going on and on and on. Don't try and talk to children when they're tired or when they're hungry or when they're watching their favourite TV show. But just coming in and saying, you know that your brother or sister was in a car accident. You saw that happen. What was that like? Because often they'll tell you. They want to go into detail about what happened. And then we need to say, we're very concerned about them. They may die because kids will have already thought of that. Even really young children have often already thought of that. This is what they look like. They've got a breathing tube in their nose or their mouth. They've got lots of lines and they look like little needles. They're not in any pain. They're not asleep. We've given them medicine that makes them look like they're asleep, but you can't wake them up. And this is what's going to happen next. And then you give them the opportunity to ask questions. And some kids don't ask questions, but most kids do. And when they come in to the room, you just take them through things, what everything means, what all the machines, what the monitoring means. It looks like a television. It isn't. This is measuring blood pressure. This is measuring oxygen. And then usually the thing that most children under 12 pick up on is the catheter and the urine in the bag. Because they're kids. That's what they do. And they might even find it funny. So with the language that we use, I sometimes see parents almost talking down to children. Do we try and translate what is an adult thing into childlike language? Or do we just use the words and then leave them open to ask questions? I really strongly encourage people to use the words. And the reason for that is that sometimes people want to say, even after someone's been hit by a car, your brother or sister is really, really sick. Now, if that child dies... What happens is those siblings go home and the next time they've got an ear infection or a tummy bug, we're going to say, you can't go to school today because you're really, really sick, which for them means death. So we want to separate those things so far away from each other. So if it's a tumor, it's a neuroblastoma, we call it a neuroblastoma. If it's a head injury, we call it a head injury. If it's a cardiac condition, we say when your baby brother or sister was growing in mummy's tummy, for no reason, mummy didn't do anything wrong, you didn't do anything wrong, the cells grew differently than how they should and now their heart's not put together properly. This is what we're going to do to try and fix it, but it may not work because we wanted them to be very clear and to be able to differentiate that a cardiac condition is very different from just an everyday cold and that you can't catch a cardiac condition or a head injury or cystic fibrosis or any of those things. I think that's a really important tip, isn't it? Because it's all too tempting to use the same words. One of my favourite words is poorly. Oh, they're a bit poorly. And poorly can mean anything from they've got a temperature and they're lying in bed watching CBeebies to they're in an ITU bed. So I think that's one thing that I'll definitely take away, this idea of keeping those things separate. Now, on a previous podcast, we've talked about actually not breaking bad news, but communicating bad news. And I think from my experience of this, both personally and professionally, for some children, you tell them this stuff, And they move on to the next thing because they have busy lives and busy brains. And I've had to tell my children one particular piece of news. And I remember one of them just went, "Okay, Dad, let's move on and let's go and play cricket. It was only after actually days and then weeks that he came back to me and wanted to talk to me more. So it must be very important to remain open to these conversations and not consider them ever finished. Grief is very developmental. So if a four-year-old has a brother or sister die, as long as there's someone still looking after them, attending to their needs, they've still got a primary attacher, then you might find that they don't have any reaction at all. And then at seven, 
you might find them having a little bit of a cry because they don't have a baby brother or sister. And then at 13, you might find them saying things like, you don't care about me because you still miss my brother or sister and I'm not important to you. These are just developmental understandings. What we understand by grief and loss and the permanency of that is extremely different for children based on their developmental understanding, not necessarily their chronological age. So you've just got to sit where where kids said it. Sometimes I can see parents becoming so furious with older or younger siblings in our ICU because something really serious has happened. A child's just been run over by the aunt who was visiting and the 15-year-old girl's like, well, who's going to take me to the school dance? Developmentally, that's pretty appropriate. That's still her priority. It's also a way for her to distract herself and step back from the situation of what's actually happening. That doesn't necessarily mean that kid's selfish. It's just a coping mechanism or developmentally where they're kind of sitting. And you just need to explain that to parents. Now, we've talked before about the fact that things will happen in life. And part of the happiness of life is the ability to experience sadness. Obviously, we want to have lives where our children don't have to see these things, but some of them will. And at work, we will see this for you on a daily basis for me every now and again. Will these children be permanently damaged by the experience they've had? Will they be able to go on and have fulfilling lives if they've had a sibling die or be part of some of these tragic circumstances? circumstances, do we need to worry that this child is changed forever? You can't say individually what's going to happen, but if we look at globally, um, there's been a lot of research done on children who have had a parent die, either suddenly or from an oncology disease. And there's also been a lot of work done on siblings. And what the research would very clearly say, and certainly my own experiences, both personally and in 20 years of work, is that children will be hurt. Absolutely. They will grieve. It will change the course of their life. It will change the way they understand that the world happens. However, there is no evidence to show that these children will necessarily be damaged. The most research has been done in children who've had a sibling with an oncology disease. And there is some suggestion that perhaps these children do have higher anxiety, but you've got to expect that. They've got a sibling who's having a protracted disease that with an unknown outcome where a parent is often quite absent Of course, it's going to change things, but there is no evidence to say that these children are less likely to do well academically, that they're less likely to do well socially. There's been a piece of research done on siblings of children who have got a sibling with a severe disability. And what, again, it'll show is that their lives are hugely impacted. Often these kids can't do other extracurricular activities, etc. But actually, they're more sensitive they're more altruistic than their peers. They've got a greater understanding about how life actually occurs. No evidence to demonstrate that these kids are going to be damaged or will be have a high incidence of mental health issues. In our critical care environments, it's really important right from the go-get that we explain that to families and that we put them on a path where grief and loss is going to be enormously challenging However, that they realise that they can survive this and survive it well. So I think in this brief conversation we've had, and of course, this is just the beginning of the way in which we can talk about this. And I'd encourage you to go and talk to your colleagues. If you're lucky enough to have someone like Liz in your hospital, and I think, frankly, we should be trying to get more Liz's in our UK emergency department and intensive care units. The idea that we can cope with all this psychological stuff on the basis of a medical and nursing degree, I think is naive in the extreme. And we need to look to experts. But the things I've taken out of this conversation, I think, are these. That first of all, children are going to be exposed to bad things. 
We can't stop that happening. And when it happens, we have to be truthful with them about what's going on and use the language that's clear about what's happening. Don't hide the language. Don't use ambiguous language. Use medical terms or other terms that make it clear that this is a different situation to the situations that they have day to day. And also that this is part of life and that these children will grow. They will be challenged and they may well be changed, but they won't be damaged. So there is an optimistic side to these incredibly difficult circumstances that we find ourselves in both professionally and personally. This doesn't have to be a desperate situation. This actually can be an opportunity for growth and these children will do okay. They just need people to support them, to be there for them, to still let them be children, but to be honest with them. Families will often ask, do you think we should employ a counsellor? I'm opposed to that. I don't want us setting families and children up to believe that when anything bad happens in life, you have to have therapy. If children are particularly struggling or if parents or the family around them don't have the resources or skills for one reason or another to respond to that child, then that's very different. On the whole, people can survive this and work through it. And if they're finding it difficult, then you can refer on to counselling, but it doesn't need to be the first port of call. I think the bottom line is, is that we can do this, whether as parents or as professionals in the healthcare setting. We just need to give it some thought. We need to be careful about what we say. And we need to have an optimism for the future, knowing that the outcome from these often terrible circumstances can be one that is positive and leads to fulfilling lives for those that are left behind.